mornings. I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today are social media influencers losing their influence. How something that was supposed to rewrite the playbook of how products and services were marketed to consumers is now grappling with the same realities that have always ruled the advertising business. Also this morning, reflections on America's 39th president. As Jimmy Carter enters hospice care and the country prepares to mourn a former leader, presidential historian Jane Hampton Cook discusses his place among those who have held the office. And happening around town, let hope grow. We have details on the annual Hope House benefit auction and the need it helps to fill for vulnerable families in the community. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. A pop culture icon of the 1970s, the disco era, has passed into the dustbin of history. Lenny's Pizzeria, pizza place made famous by John Travolta in the 1977 movie classic Saturday Night Fever, has closed. It is uh, certainly the end of an era. The Brooklyn pizza joint was immortalized when uh, Tony Manero played by John Travolta, uh, went in and ordered a double-decker at, uh, at Lenny's. And customers just started flocking to the with the popularity of the film. Uh, Lenny's Pizzeria uh, became a, an, an icon for fans. Uh, customers are heartbroken that the owner of Lenny's, Frank Giordano, is retiring. And uh, Sunday night, for the final evening of operation lines snaked around three city blocks in Brooklyn with fans showing up for one final slice. It is just now. I think we can say that disco is dead. Disco is definitely dead. I can't believe that there was nobody who wanted to take over that business. You know what I mean? But I guess Maybe you should have sold. If it's me, I probably would have sold at the height of the popularity of the business. I mean, there is no better time to just sell, cash in, and sign out and enjoy uh, retirement. But anyway, just kind of uh, kind of interesting. So this is uh, big news here. Um, I thought this was uh, amazing when I heard this story. Researchers have announced that a 53-year-old man in Germany has been cured of HIV. Uh, referred, referred to only as the Dusseldorf patient to protect his privacy, researchers said he is the fifth confirmed case of an HIV cure, although the details of his successful treatment were first announced at a conference in 2019. Researchers could not confirm that he had been officially cured at that time, but according to a report from ABC News, researchers yesterday announced that the patient still has no detectable virus in his body, even after discontinuing his HIV medic- medication four years ago. So uh, HIV is today, I mean, at one time it was maybe the most feared virus in the world today for most people. Although HIV is a lifelong infection, is still considered incurable, uh, the virus never fully eradicated thanks to modern medication 
those with HIV can live uh, long and healthy lives, but uh, are constantly on medication. This man, uh, the HIV did not return. The virus did not return at a detectable level, even after he discontinued uh, his medication. So uh, they can call him officially cured. So this is is big news. Um... Let's see what else is uh, is going on here. Among the first things you need to know this morning. Um, so California has a new battle on its hands in the fight against global warming. Back in August, the state passed a law to phase out gas-powered cars and trucks by 2035. And that has made all kinds of headlines, right? They're going to outlaw internal combustion engines. Well, guess what? It's not just cars that have internal combustion engines. Now the state is taking aim at millions of lawnmowers in the Golden State. Uh, California, which they love to point out, is the world's fourth biggest economy all on its own and home to 39.4 million people, is now set to ban the sale of gas-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers within the next several months. This is according to... Assembly Bill 1346, a new law that will phase out small off-road engines, or SOARs, as they call them. (laughs) Small off-road engines, SOARs. We don't want any more. We're going to cure all of the SOARs in the state of California. The uh, Air Resources Board will direct implementation of the law. They note that a typical leaf blower emits as much CO2 as a 2016 Toyota Camry when driven 1,100 miles. And an hour on a commercial lawnmower emits as much smog-producing pollution as a Camry does over a 300-mile trip. So if California, they say, is to hit its goal of carbon neutrality by the year 2045, these millions of sores will have to go. How, if you run a commercial, I mean, think about this. If you run a commercial lawn mowing business, how in the world are you going to not use a gas-powered mower? I mean, think about this. Um, Dodger Stadium, can they mow the entire outfield with an electric mower? I mean, I'm just throwing out examples here. Um, you got to figure that they will probably have to. Make some exceptions, I would think. But it is California. Um, This is kind of speaking of energy. As part of existing requirements for offshore energy production, 600 shipwrecks have been found in the Gulf of Mexico alone by oil and gas producers. Did you know that? However, scientists and historians believe that this is just a fraction of the number that there actually are out there. And so a new proposal to the Federal Register by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management would obligate offshore energy companies to conduct maritime archaeological surveys before undertaking any operations that would disturb the seafloor off the continental shelf. In other words, they want to make sure that there are no shipwrecks that could be disturbed by oil drilling. And if there are, those shipwrecks would have to be preserved. 
In 2011, an unnamed energy company spotted a shipwreck near its operations, which was excavated last year by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, turned out to be the 207-year-old, uh, a 207-year-old whaling ship that had sunk. So, I mean, I get, uh, you know, wanting to preserve these historical artifacts, but that seems like a very tall burden. Anytime you are drilling offshore, got to make sure that there is no, uh, there are no shipwrecks out there. It's kind of interesting. We'll see how it, see where it goes. Um, this was kind of among the other most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. You can add first-generation iPhones to the list of collectibles that could bring in big bucks. If you have a first-generation iPhone, you may be sitting on a gold mine. Now, caveat to that, uh, this was an iPhone that was still sealed in its original box. But it sold for more than $63,000 at an auction over the weekend. A, a, an original iPhone in its box, sealed, unopened, $63,000. The original owner of the device said she received it as a gift when it was brand new, but never opened it since she had already gotten a new phone. She didn't... Now, I don't know whether she got another iPhone or whether she just wasn't convinced that the iPhone was anything special. <laughs> she said she had gotten a new phone. I'm wondering if she stuck the iPhone in a drawer because, hey, I've already got a flip phone. What do I need this iPhone thing for? Because there were a fair number of people when the iPhone first came out that didn't you know, recognize its potential immediately. But uh, other first-generation iPhones have been sold at auction for uh, in the tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, even though maybe they're not in their original sealed boxes. But this was a record, $63,000. The 8-gigabyte phone was originally listed for less than $600 when it was introduced in 2007. And we thought that that was outrageously expensive. Man. <laughs> My wife just got a, a new phone, and uh, they gave her 20 bucks for it. <laughs> Uh, this one, a little bit, a uh, little bit more valuable on the uh, trade-in market, the secondary market, I guess. And uh, how about this? Uh, something to uh, think about here, something to chew on. Among the first things you need to know this morning, a new study from New York University has found that it takes the average person less than five seconds, five seconds, to decide if they like a particular song that they hear. The first time you hear it, it takes five seconds. Uh, humans tend to respond to the vibe of the track, not necessarily the notes themselves or even the lyrics or anything like that. It's the vibe, and you can get a sense of that in just five seconds. The 650 participants in this NYU study listened to 250 songs. Um, well, they listened to 250 songs, full songs, and then they listened to 250 song ex uh, excerpts that lasted from 5 to 15 seconds. And over the course of any given song, the acoustic properties change dramatically, but that doesn't seem to matter much to the listeners. The author of the study said uh, 5 seconds on average would determine 
whether somebody liked uh, a song. Interesting. These findings, they say, could help us understand how songs evoke emotions. Well, okay then. I just thought that five seconds. We just don't give uh, songs a whole lot of time to capture our attention. I wonder if... I wish they had done this study like 10, 20 years ago to see if it was different. I mean, we talk about our attention spans getting shorter all the time. And I have a sneaking suspicion this is uh, maybe an example of that. But I don't know because they didn't do the survey or they didn't do the study 20 years ago. I'd be interested to uh, go back in time and see whether or not five seconds would hold true, you know, in the 80s or 90s. Anyway, there you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, becoming mostly sunny today, a high of 38. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight, a low of 32. Christian Clearinghouse is now accepting donations for its annual benefit garage sale, which will be held next month. Executive Director Tammy Stahl. It's a big undertaking, so the community support is has always been amazing, and we just so appreciate every single donation that comes in the door. Tammy says people could drop off their donations at Brinkman's Greenhouse at 1800 East Sandusky Street in Finley through March 11th. Then the annual garage sale will be held March 18th and the 19th. Get more on the website. This will be a busy week in East Palestine as cleanup efforts continue following that toxic train derailment there earlier this month. Mayor Trent Conaway said the first wave of the FEMA assessment team is on the ground and helping to coordinate the cleanup with the state and federal EPA members. This after some residents are now complaining of headaches and skin rashes. I'm Lena Lye. A sprawling manufacturing plant in Lima is playing a critical role in the effort to arm Ukraine as it fends off the Russian invasion. Owned by the Army and operated by General Dynamics, the Joint Systems Manufacturing Center, also known as the Lima Army Tank Plant, is expected to refurbish Abrams' tanks to send to Ukraine and is preparing to build an updated version of the vehicle for Poland. U.S. officials have declined to provide details about the Abrams that will eventually go to Ukraine, saying they have to decide whether to send refurbished older Army tanks, Marine tanks, or some other version. Dave James, Owen in News. A popular show on PBS will be filming some episodes in the Buckeye State. I would easily put an auction estimate of $5,000 to $7,000 on it. That is a big surprise. It truly is. Antiques Roadshow has announced its 2023 production tour, and one of the stops will be in Akron at Stan Hewitt Hall and Gardens. The Akron stop marks one of five locations that the show will be visiting this year, with three episodes created at each destination that will air in 2024. The show says fans can enter for a chance to win free tickets, and we have a link with this story on our website. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, the advent of social media gave rise to the influencer. It's a term we've all heard. These people who make their living promoting products and services through their online channels to legions of fans. For those who are good at it, it became a disruptive force in advertising and marketing, but now it seems that influencers are losing their influence over the prime target group that they were coveted for bringing to the table. So what becomes of the influencer and where are we headed next? 
Carl Gould is a worldwide leading authority on business, a successful entrepreneur and analyst. His company, Seven Stage Advisors, helps organizations grow to the next level. And Carl, what happened to the influence of the influencer? <laughs> well, it's it's funny you say that because the um, the influencer was always very helpful to us because they were a trusted source. They, we hoped, vetted the product and was using the product. And so if we wanted to buy that mattress or those shoes or go to that, that park locally, we were trusting the word of mouth referral, essentially, of that influencer. Mm-hmm. Now, what, but that, that particular cottage industry is still alive and well and will be. However, we started to realize that the influencer has a financial stake now mm-hmm. in giving that giving that product or service a good mark. And so it has given rise to the de-influencer, the fact checker, if you will, right? We, uh, as soon as a debate or a presidential speech is given, what's first thing all the uh, journalists do is they get on there and they fact check and they say, well, wait a minute, this isn't a hundred percent true. And that's not a hundred percent true. Right. And here are the real facts. And so the influencer market has matured and it is now given way. It has now opened up a uh, room for this de influencer now. So really, it, there, there's nothing new here uh, because I remember, if, for folks who are old enough to remember, in the early days of broadcasting, when announcers, radio personalities, television personalities would talk in glowing terms about their sponsor's product as if it were uh, something that they used, and again. At first, it was very powerful, but then people started to catch on that these were paid advertisements. Is this kind of the same thing happening all over again for the digital age? It's similar. It is. It is following that same kind of maturity of of the of the activity. So, um, it, if all of these influencers were unpaid endorsers, mm-hmm. they we we probably would not have the need for or the de-influencer probably would not have cropped up. Um, But what happens is now we are 12% less likely to believe an influencer than we were just a year or two ago. And the reason is now is, you know, we know, we now know that product placement in a YouTube uh, webisode that has a significant amount of followers can command up to $15,000. Yeah. So, all right, how much do, can we trust that you really like the product or is it simply that they're paying you 15 grand to put that, put that item on you? You know, I also wonder if part of the decline in that respect in terms of the influence that influencers have uh, is due to oversaturation. I mean, for a while, it seemed like anyone with a Twitter handle and an Instagram was an influencer wannabe, and maybe it diluted the ability of those who were really good at it to stand out. And I think there's some real merit to what you're saying, because the, you know, what makes an influencer, what makes a consultant, you know, hopefully it's somebody who has just a little bit more knowledge about that particular topic than you do, but how do we know? And so we've, you know, through the pandemic, so many people have become, um, you know, armchair psychologists and experts Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and so the, the the expert and the influencer title have been morphed a little bit, 
right? You can be an influencer without being a, um, without being uh, an expert. I mean, uh, you know, but you, you typically, they are somewhat related because we are assuming you're doing the research. You're right. at least checking it out. Yeah. Or at least someone who's got their nose to the grindstone. You know, this is the person that walks all the trails at the parks near you and says, Hey, I might not be an expert at, hiking, but I've walked all these trails and I've documented it and said, here's the ones that I like. And here are the ones you might want to check out. That's an influencer. They don't have to be an expert, but Mm -hmm. they're an influencer, Yeah, you know, and, and now that same influencer is now being paid a certain amount of money to walk those trails. We start to question, you know, how, how much should, how much weight should we give their recommendation? Yeah. I I wonder too, uh, how much, uh, the, changing reality of economic conditions play a part of this. I mean, uh, people now more than they were three or four years ago are tightening their belts, cutting out unnecessary spending and much of what influencers have been peddling was and is in the discretionary spending category. So I wonder if that also uh, plays a role in this. I do think it makes it, it has a um, has a, an impact, and one of the ways it will have an impact is how much does what an influencer tell you to buy really make a positive change in your life? And there have been a number of blogs over the years, and and other the influencers, if you will, that have done the Oprah's recommendation list. You know, there's um, there have been a few people who have said who have bought everything Oprah told you to buy, right? And then they did the report on, well, how much did that really change my life and did it improve? And so mm-hmm. we've come to learn that the not everything is perfect for everybody. And so within these recommendations, yes, you have to you have to be careful and you have to utilize your discretionary spending uh, in such a way to make sure that what you are buying that's recommended actually will make a difference. Now, I think all of this, you can't, you can't afford to go for a bad recommendation. Right. Um, now having said all of that, and I think this is an important point that, that you make is, you know, there were a lot of people all along who were skeptical to say the least, uh, you know, of the influencer, uh, trend. And you say this does not necessarily mean that the era of the influencer is over, as you were alluding to uh, before. It may it may look different in in years to come, but it will still be there, right? They'll always be the influencer because we oh we we um, it's a shortcut to help us understand what to what action to take, what to buy, and what not to. So mm. there are always going to be people that, as long as we know, like, and trust them, uh, we will take their recommendation, and so. This is a wake-up call for influencers to do a little bit more research, to cite their sources, to use more research and, and fact-based endorsements, mm-hmm. and not just anecdotal. Anecdotal used to be good enough. It's not good enough, and it's not good enough anymore because there are now contrarian influencers out there, and that's good. It's good for us as consumers because now we get both sides of the story. So where does that leave uh, the influencer, the consumer, and the business who has leveraged influencers to promote their products and or services? Well, I think you're what you're going to, if, if you're the influencer, you now want to make, you want to make sure as much as you've always done, you want to make sure that you're fully transparent. 
if you are, if there's a disclaimer uh, that you need to share or you're receiving an, uh, some sort of uh, incentive for making this endorsement, you want to make sure you let people know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and if you are uh, a D influencer, you want to do the same thing because D inf- here's what's coming. D influencers will be paid to fact check their competitors. Hmm. So Ford will have a hire a D influencer to talk about Dodge, hmm. right? Or, you know, and, and Dodge will do that about Chevy and on yeah. and on and on. And so, um, so that, that'll be the next iteration. Um, and, and, credibility matters here. So as much as you can cite your sources, be fact-based, do the research and use data to drive your opinions, that's going to be all the more beneficial and the co- the consumer will ultimately benefit. Again, uh, Carl Gould is a worldwide leading authority on business. Uh, his company, Seven Stage Advisors. Carl, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate your insight. Well, I'm, I'm uh, happy to help out. Of course, we learned over the weekend that former President Jimmy Carter has entered hospice care. And we know how this ends. He's 98 years old, so it's not necessarily a surprise. But anytime you're faced with the prospect of losing a former leader, it is natural to reflect on his legacy. And uh, joining us is pres- presidential historian Jane Hampton Cook. Jane, I thought it was really interesting. The Washington Post, uh, in, in their headline, uh, made it a, a point that by announcing that uh, the president had, had entered hospice care, it uh, gives us a unique opportunity to memorialize him while he is still with us, uh, which doesn't uh, always happen. What That's... That's true. Um, We saw this with Barbara Bush. Mm -hmm. She she let us know that she had declined, you know, further medical treatment. But but it is new, kind of a different. It's it's definitely a way to memorialize someone while they're still with us. And uh, you know, anyone who's gone through hospice care with a family member, you know, understands where that does lead. Yeah. Obviously, uh, President Carter's legacy will be defined by the Iranian hostage crisis. That's the first thing that I think most people who were old enough to remember uh, his time in office will uh, immediately go to. What What is the larger? I mean, he was, he's not one of our, our greatest presidents, but I wonder if he was more ineffective than bad, necessarily. Well, and he, he didn't have a good hand dealt to him, right? Because there right. was inflation, gas prices, the Iranian hostage crisis. Um, so, yeah, it was the times were not good. But I really think that here you have a, a person who you know, grew up in a house without electricity and indoor plumbing, and he rose to become governor of his state, and then he became president. And he showed that you didn't have to grow up with money and wealth and being an elite to become president. He started the trend. There were several governors who came after him who were Washington outsiders like Carter. You had Clinton, you had Reagan, you had Bush. And and it started this trend, and he brought this integrity. He was an honest man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Americans needed that character, that moral character, in the wake of the Vietnam War and Watergate. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing that has been pointed out. I mean, remember when he came into office, we were right on the heels of, uh, of Watergate, uh, and the Vietnam War was uh, still very fresh. 
And when he said, I, th- I think the, the one statement that got him elected, when he looked in the camera and said, I will never lie to you. And I think American people felt they had been lied to uh, during the entirety of the Vietnam War, certainly during Watergate. I, I think that was the one thing that resonated uh, with people. Yes, I think that's very true. And, you know, even in his um, crisis of incompetence speech, his malaise speech, mm-hmm. he was being honest with the American people. Right. He was reflecting what the polling was saying. That, As you just said, American people had lost faith in their, their government and in their nation, and he wanted to restore that. So his honesty and forthrightness was, you know, what Americans turned to in the 1976 presidential election. And yet, uh, that honesty, uh, when he he was president didn't go over well and like i said he's uh, viewed as one of our our weakest presidents but as you said uh he was an outsider kind of laid the groundwork for outsiders to come in uh after him did those uh subsequent outsiders who came in learn from president carter's mistakes well, you know, I I think so. I mean, you had Reagan who came in and he presented that hopeful, optimistic tone. Yeah. That tone wasn't exactly something Carter was able to project. Right. He projected the honesty, but he didn't have the, the sunny personality to go with it, mm-hmm. the telegenic personality. Yeah. So I do think they learned from him. And, you know, LBJ was known for arm twisting on Capitol Hill, and Carter wasn't like that. So he struggled sometimes with Congress, and that slowed down getting the energy package passed, which increased domestic oil production and helped lower gas prices yeah. after Carter was out of office. Office. Yeah, and but I, I do think that you know his example helps future future outsider presidents. And and uh, again, historians have noted that he really found it very difficult even to work with members of his own party in Congress, partly because he was an outsider and didn't have those Washington insider skills. That's right. He didn't want to, you know, I'll do this if you give me that. He didn't like that trading, you know, because it wasn't always honest. It maybe wasn't always in the best interest for the American people to to do the pork spending that that often happens in Congress. But he um, he did, you know, have some success on Capitol Hill and finally got some things passed. But in one term, it just it just didn't reflect on him Mm -hmm. like it might have if he had been a two term president. What would be his his greatest achievement uh, in in office? I mean, again, you would have to maybe go to the Mideast Peace Accords. Yes. I definitely think that his negotiated peace between Israel and Egypt was his greatest accomplishment. He, that was that was hands down. He no No president had been able to broker a peace deal like that since Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s. Yeah. He negotiated peace between Japan and Russia. And Carter didn't get the Nobel Prize for it. He probably deserved it and didn't, he definitely deserved it, but didn't get it. But that's, that is, I think, his biggest, you know, accomplishment as president is brokering that deal. When we got the news over the weekend that he had entered hospice care, one of the things that I posted on a social media and I tweeted about this uh, is that while he was not our greatest president, will not be remembered as our greatest president, he was perhaps the most fundamentally decent human being ever to occupy the office. I mean, he was just a fundamentally decent man. And a lot of folks have have pointed to the fact that he was perhaps a better former president than he was a president. 
That's right. He could have just retired and been led kind of a quiet life, and he didn't. He had this robust post-presidency. He really put Habitat for Humanity on right. the map. I remember seeing commercials with him, mm-hmm. you know, encouraging home home building, um, and and. It, he did. He he kept serving, and that goes to his work ethic. You know, even as a child, he was known as a hard worker on the farm, and he even bought up some houses as a teenager during the Great Depression, and then rented them. and And that just shows you that hard work ethic really um, is what I think made him that decent man that people look to. Um, you know, for for when there was a need for honesty and integrity coming from the White House. Uh, you think about you mentioned Habitat for Humanity. I mean, that was the uh, organization that that he and his wife Rosalind had had started. And you think of all of the lives across the country that that has touched, uh, and and it's just it boggles the mind that one person could have that kind of impact. So he certainly leveraged uh, his influence as a former president for the uh, greater good. I, I I have to ask you about this. This is maybe kind of a, a little uh, offbeat. You were for a time the White House. Uh, uh, you ran the White House uh, website, uh, right? That's the, right. Andrews, mm-hmm. What would that have been like in the Carter era? I mean, could you well, could, could that have it, could that have changed uh, the the course of Carter's presidency if he'd have had that kind of platform to go directly to the American people? You know, it could have, because certainly what websites did, especially in the early days, is it gave the president a direct communication with the people. They didn't have to go through the filter of the media at all, and it bypassed that. And so, yeah, I definitely think that kind of, you know, media could have could have been beneficial to President Carter, you know, and others, you know, who who didn't have the, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was the first president to have a website. Yeah. And then um, President Bush, you know, inherited that, and that it's just grown from there. So, yeah. Really interesting stuff, uh, reflecting on our 39th president and the legacy he ultimately uh, leaves behind. And again, uh, presidential historian Jane Hampton Cook with us this morning. Some terrific books, by the way, on the uh, history of our uh, presidents and the, the history of our country. We've got it linked up at our webpage. Jane, thanks very much for taking the time, sharing your insight. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Hundreds, this is an amazing story. Hundreds of uninvited teenagers broke into a Texas family's home over the weekend for a mansion rager party that they promoted on social media all without the knowledge of the homeowner. Now, this is not the first time that a bunch of teenagers have crashed someone's house for a big party while they were not home. But in this case, the homeowner emphasized that it wasn't students knowing that a classmate's parents were out of town for the weekend. This family only has a toddler who's not even in school yet. They just, like, picked a random home to have this huge party at. Um, According to the owners uh, owners of the home, and they were not identified uh, in this report, they told local news reporters, we started receiving numerous phone calls from our neighbors that there were kids on our property 
there were cars up and down the street and kids were hopping over the uh, the front of the of the fence of the gate on the uh, on the property. This is in Austin, Texas. The shindig caused thousands of dollars in damages. The homeowner said he rushed home Saturday night and found car after car after car just trying to flee the scene. They knew they had been busted. The party was reportedly promoted on Snapchat where it was described as a mansion rager. They just, they just picked a house at random and trashed it. That's nice. Very nice. <clears throat> I'm, I'm guessing that, uh, as the house is described as a mansion, and from the uh, description of the house, i got to believe that there's security footage that uh, police have gained access to to try to identify the perpetrators, but... It's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, the odd and unusual side of the headlines, did you happen to see this? A man in London received a letter at his home the other day uh, that had a date of 16 on it. It's the year that it had been mailed. 16. And you think, wow, that's a, that's a long time. Well, it turned out it took even longer to be delivered than it first appeared. The uh, the man uh, by the name of uh, Christabel Menel. Oh, that was the sender. I'm sorry. The sender was Christabel Menel. Um, uh, the, they said uh, they noticed when it showed up in their mailbox that the year was 16, but then they noticed the stamp uh, on it. And again, this is in England. The stamp had the image of a king rather than a queen, so we knew that it couldn't be 2016, and it turned out it wasn't. The sender mailed the letter in 1916. Uh, Once they realized that it was a very old letter, uh, they decided to go ahead and open it. it. The uh, note, uh, the uh, uh, Cristobal Manel, who sent the uh, details a family vacation, the Royal Mail released a statement they had, saying they had no uh, information on what might have happened and why, <laughs> why number one, it was never delivered back in 1916 and how it showed up in 2023 in this guy's mailbox. But isn't that crazy? Can you imagine going to the mailbox and uh, finding a uh, letter that was more than 100 years old just finally being delivered? <clears throat> and at 1916 postage rates. Well, they got their money's worth. And mailing that letter, I guess. There's a little time-traveling thing there. Uh, elsewhere, the, speaking of time travel, in, um, in 1992, an artifact was discovered in an old fort in Rome, or outside of Rome, an old Roman fort. Um, an artifact measuring 6.3 inches in length. Archaeologists initially uh, were unsure as to what it was. Now, they believe they have an answer. The 2,000-year-old wooden artifact, they believe, may be an old-fashioned adult toy. (laughs) That's what they have concluded. That this was uh, an implement for personal pleasure. (laughs) The artifact discovered in 1992 
Uh, it was discovered in an old Roman fort, it says here. The uh, object was found alongside shoes and dress accessories, which led some to believe that maybe it was a darning tool. Nope, wasn't that. Um, since both ends of the object were smooth, indicated re- indicating repeated use, <laughs> and given the general shape of the object, <laughs> they, they think that it may be the oldest known adult toy on the planet. <laughs> I'll talk about it. An amazing and important discovery right there. That's <laughs> uh, let's see. Moving on. <clears throat> this is kind of crazy. You talk about an oops. Uh, this was in Miami at the Art Winwood Fair in Miami. Uh, over Was this over the weekend? Was that last week? A sculpture valued at $40,000 was shattered. It was last week, last Thursday, it says. A sculpture worth $40,000 was shattered when an art collector accidentally bumped into the pedestal where it had been displayed. (laughs) Uh, This was a dog balloon sculpture by the artist Jeff Koons. Maybe you're familiar uh, I don't immediately recognize the work, but yeah. uh, apparently is one of less than 800 copies in existence. So it's uh, very rare, uh, entitled Balloon Dog Blue. Uh, the collector never intended to break the sculpture. It wasn't intentional. In fact, she never touched it with her hands, according to the uh, director of Bel Air Fine Art. He said, this kind of thing, unfortunately, does happen, which is why the artwork was covered by insurance. No, it wasn't a you break it, you bought it kind of thing. That's <laughs> Can you imagine $40,000 sculpture shattered into pieces because <clears throat> you bumped into it? Wow. <clears throat> That'd be embarrassing. Uh, let's see here. And how about this? I saw this on the, <laughs> on the news story or on the uh, newswire from the international file. And, uh, I thought to myself, how would you like to be this guy at the Hitachi city zoo in Japan? They had a drill to practice for the possible scenario of a bear escaping its enclosure. Um, the uh, the zoo included local police, firefighters, and pest control on the exercise. About 40 people were involved. The zoo <laughs> dressed a worker in a bear costume, and then that person was tasked with running around during the emergency drill so that people could prepare for the unlikely possibility of the zoo's Asian black bear getting loose. Uh, in the drill scenario, there was a, an earthquake which broke a window to the bear's exclu- enclosure, and so the bear got out and then was running. Uh, to wrangle the bear, staff used nets and other means, including a tranquilizer gun, to try to corral the animal. So how would you like to be the guy that they tapped to portray the bear? Okay, can you imagine that conversation? Your boss comes to you and says, we want you to dress up in a bear suit. We're going to chase you around the zoo to try and tranquilize you and get you back to your enclosure. 
the worker had to pretend to collapse and not move. The uh, team then returned the fake bear back to where it belonged. <laughs> Can you imagine? They don't, they don't pay me enough. They don't pay me enough. There you go. Uh, that is uh, today's broken news report. Uh, this update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service. Uh, more or less, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Remember the one person who made a difference in your life? The person who believed in you before you believed in you? Since 1974, Children's Mentoring Connection has been a part of creating relationships and making connections for our kids. Just a small investment of your time makes a great impact with a child. Volunteer occasionally as a pal mentor, two to three times a month as a community mentor, or once a week as a school-based mentor. Visit cmchancock.org. This is your chance to help build a better future for our kids. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. We know that the weight loss industry is a multi-billion dollar business in this country, and we are as obsessed as ever with our weight. A new survey of 2,000 Americans finds that 95% of us have tried to lose weight at some point in the past five years. 95%. The Battle of the Bulge is real. 44% say they have struggled so much with weight loss, they've actually ended up gaining 21 pounds or more. Lack of motivation, lack of willpower, expense, and time are the most common challenges. 69% of those with hybrid work schedules say they eat more at home than in the office. Uh, Dietitian Courtney McCormick says, uh, weight loss is a journey, not a sprint. You've heard that before. Uh, She says... Aiming to lose one to two pounds per week is what you should shoot for. That is considered a healthy weight loss uh, regimen to set you up for lasting success. And what is most disturbing, perhaps, in this is that our obsession with weight is carrying over to a new generation. A separate study out of Spain indicates that just over 20% of kids suffer from Disordered eating, three in 10 girls, one in six boys struggle with things like anorexia, bulimia, and other extreme dieting behaviors. That's just over 20%, one in five. Uh, For this study, scientists uh, compiled uh, prior data involving 63,000 participants between the ages of 7 and 18. And the lead author of the study Finds it uh, says that girls with children, uh, girls and children with higher BMIs were particularly at risk. Uh, this high proportion is worrisome. They say eating disorders are among the most life-threatening psychiatric uh, problems, and uh, they go on to say that this is a call for urgent action to try to address this situation. So, happening around town, right around the corners, the annual Hope House Benefit Auction, Let Hope Grow. Lori Poland is here from Hope House with details on the event and the needed helps fill for vulnerable families in the community. Lori, thanks very much for dropping by. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, the details on the event is coming up on March 10th, right? Yep, this okay. is March 10th. This is the second year we'll be at the Hancock Hotel. Okay. Uh, we'll be filling up all of their spaces, but um, we'll have a live and a silent auction 
We have several raffles going on. Uh, one of the most popular raffles is the dessert raffle, where you get to dig into your cupcake or cookie and see if you can have won $1,000. So mm-hmm. that's always a big part of the evening. That's yeah. sponsored by Premier Bank. Um, our presenting sponsor is Hancock Federal Credit Union. This is the third year for them to be our presenting sponsor, so we really appreciate their support. I know, because uh, I was reading some of the uh, stuff that you have uh, available He's got some right. really great packages here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we have um, some really fun stuff this year. Um, we have, in lieu of the, uh, we usually we have Ohio State Michigan tickets. This year we have Thomas Rhett tickets. Um, he'll be Not at bad. the, yeah, Not bad. I think that'll be go very well. He, sure. uh, Cole Swindell and Nate Smith, um, that they'll be in Toledo in September. So we're really excited about that. Uh, we have uh, some friends of mine who have donated a sailboat ride and lunch at Putin Bay. So that will be really nice. Oh, wow. Uh, that's cool. And we're really excited about, um, uh, we have a donation of a week at Apostle Robles, a brand new home. And so you can go there for a week and hang out in a brand new house. So that's uh, very close to wine country. And we have never offered a trip that has been that far away. So we're really, really excited to have that. And who couldn't use a vacation right well, about absolutely, now? Absolutely, right. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. Everybody will be in the mood for that as we mentioned this is a huge fundraiser this is the biggest fundraiser that you have it is uh, the biggest fundraiser of the year you know hope house is very strategic in the way that we fundraise right um we have our um benefit auction in the first quarter we have our july independence campaign in the uh summer and then the end of the year of course is our wrap up to the year of the holiday of hope so Mm -hmm. this is a very important function for us it helps to uh bridge that gap for the services that we offer through our transitional shelter let's talk a little bit about those uh services and why this is so important as we mentioned it it really uh fills a tremendous need for vulnerable families in the community there are more of them than I think a lot of people realize. There are, um, you know, according to the pit count, our, uh, which is um, that annual point in time count where we go around and count the number of homeless in our community. Um, it is up significantly from 2018. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important that we find shelter for folks that are homeless in our community. Um, if you are unaware, Hope House does provide housing assistance for individuals and families that are facing homelessness in our community. Um, I work out of our housing office, which is at the Family Center, and there we serve men, women, children, the, the elderly, veterans, um, all sorts of uh, individuals and families. But what people know us for most and what we really focus on during the auction is our transitional shelter and that transitional shelter is exactly that transitioning women and their children from homelessness back to a safe and stable home Um, it is not an emergency service it is not a domestic violence service Mm -hmm. we have those resources in our community Uh, we do collaborate with them so maybe somebody is staying at open arms they may transition to the shelter when they are safe and stable again Mm -hmm. but it does provide a roof over their heads food to eat um case management so that they have someone to help guide them along the way um, and women and their children can stay there for up to nine months what does that transition process look like uh again you talk about transitioning uh these individuals into safe and stable housing that doesn't that's more than just finding a place correct Um, case management is critical to all of our services, working with a social worker who can guide our clients along the way, um, giving them skills uh, that they may or may not have, but we know are necessary. Cooking, parenting, budgeting. We work with the Financial Opportunity Center um, at the Habitat for Humanity a lot. He, they come in and meet with our uh, clients. 
um, making sure that they have the resources that they need so they know what are they going to need when they're a renter, Mm -hmm. what is their responsibility, what is the landlord's responsibility. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people really don't even understand um, what signing a lease, what now what what that entails. Mm-hmm. They don't understand what a landlord is responsible for. So we're trying to give them those tools so that while they are with us, they leave better educated for their life's journey than when they came in. Uh, do you find that most of the time it's because uh, these individuals have never had to do it before or they've been in a situation where uh, – where it's not been properly done in the past and, you know, like a substandard housing situation where you're dealing with a, I don't want to use their term slumlord, but I mm-hmm. guess that's, you know, the, the common term. There are a lot of different, um, people come to us in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, folks that are coming from generational poverty maybe have never um, been given those, the guidance that yeah. they need because maybe their parents weren't given the guidance. Right. And so we're trying to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes people are, have had a skip in the road. They really, all they need is a little bit of a boost. They understand the way things work. They understand the way, um, you know, to get back on their own two feet, but mm-hmm. they just need that um, emotional support that someone standing uh, beside them saying, great job. You're doing, you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone that can just listen to them maybe cry and say, boy, today was really a, a frustrating day. Yeah. Um, but but really, we want to be their cheerleaders and guide them along the way. It's got to be tremendously rewarding to get to that point where you complete that transition. It really is. And it's really exciting when a, a lady comes back or a family comes to the office and says, guess what? I've got my own place. I've yeah. got the keys. I'm ready to go. Yeah. I mean, and so then our job doesn't end. We still I was going to say, that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, uh, you know, everything is sunshine and roses right. and everything's okay moving forward. Mm-hmm. These, these are still vulnerable individuals. They are. And so we, um, we the case manager st- will stay in touch with them to say, okay, how's it going? Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you need? Uh, we can, you know, we have donations are given to us, uh, things like household items, um, you know, those staples that we all need, Mm -hmm. food, uh, you know, health and hygiene. Uh, As much as that as we can provide when they move out, then their resources can continue to go toward building that home, building that resource for the home. I I think anyone who has ever had a a kid leave the nest, Mm -hmm. um, get that first apartment and know that they come back and sometimes you got to buy the stuff that they can't afford to, you know, buy the cleaning supplies (laughs) or fill the refrigerator Uh on a a week or whatever it might happen to be. This is much the same thing uh, involving people who don't have that support structure otherwise. Right. Um, we, I'll tell you what's really fun is we had a a young mother and she had a teenage daughter, early teens. And, um, I was at church one day and I saw her at church and I, I was, like I, I go to Cedar Creek, so it's big, so you don't mm-hmm. always know who's there. And yeah, and she had waited, and she had waited for me. I was talking to someone else, and she waited and came over and gave me a big hug. And I was like, "How is it going? It's great. My job <laughs> is going great. My daughter's doing great at school. I love my new place. It is just great." And I, I will tell you, that just made my day. It yeah. made my day that our organization was ca- catalytic and getting her. From where she started mm-hmm. to where she is now, yeah. and just the excitement on her face—that is just something that um, you, you just can't buy that, and and I can't get that in any other place. Yeah, um, and uh, to circle back to the benefit auction, mm-hmm. that's what 
events like that make possible. And that's the sort of feeling that you can get when you know you become a part of this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to to share in that at feeling, knowing that you have made that possible for uh, some folks for folks who are in need. So again, it is uh, March 10th, so it's right around the corner. Uh, what do folks do? we need to get tickets? What you know? For somebody who wants to participate, how do they go about doing that? Sure. We have a website. Um, we do all of the tickets online. Okay. And we also, our silent auction bidding is also online. Live auctions and raffles will be, you have to come join us that evening. Um, and I would be remiss if I did not mention that. The Honorable Judge Reg Ralston will be uh, speaking this year. And so we're excited to hear what he has to say. Um, go to our website at www.findleyhopehouse.org. There is a link there to buy tickets. Uh, tickets are $75. And we did sell out last year. So we were very excited and we're hoping for the same this year. Uh, you can buy tickets and you can also see a preview of, I've put a few of the auction items online. Not okay. all. We don't want to give away all of our cards, <laughs> but, uh, but so you can kind of see what's available. We do have that link up at our webpage too at goodmornings.net. Should point out, make sure that we emphasize, uh, Reg Rousen is going to be speaking. He's not going to be playing. So. Uh, he might be playing. He, okay. his, he One of his uh, bands, you know, he has about a million of them. One of his bands did play last year. Um, he is working on that again this year. And that was Okay, a nice so maybe, that's a, maybe so that's a bonus. Yeah, it might be we all about Red. It's no, not guaranteed. Yeah, it might be all about Red Judge okay. Robinson, yes. Just, uh-huh. uh, just throw that out there. Again, uh, Lori Poland with uh, Hope House with us uh, this morning. Again, goodmornings.net to learn more. Lori, thanks very much for dropping by. We Thank you, Chris. It. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And, of course, remember, you can get more more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage, and that is goodmornings.net. So check us out online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll talk about a proposed rule change by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that could finally make it easier for family members to step in as foster parents for kids in need. It's long overdue. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.